0: and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. This week, I am coming to you from Buenos Aires, as usual, and I'm joined by Jeffrey Sachs. Jeffrey is a lecturer in politics at Acadia University in Nova Scotia, Canada, and he's a specialist in Islamic law and politics, but he's also recently published a number of interesting articles about free speech and uh, politics on campus. And I'm very interested in finding out more about campus politics and about the cohort that people have are now calling iGen or Gen Z, that is, people who were born after 1995, which, in my opinion, should be illegal. I already had a PhD in 1995. How can you be born in that year? That's impossible. I refuse to believe it. But suspending my disbelief, I'm going to talk to Jeffrey about campus politics, society at North American universities, ideas about IJ and the cohort, and about free speech. Welcome, Jeffrey.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure.
0: So I'd like to start first by talking about free speech. You published a couple of recent articles, one for Heterodox Academy, arguing that the free speech crisis on campus peaked in 2017 and has since, and is since conditions are getting better where free speech is concerned at universities. Can you uh, talk us through that?
1: Sure. So the piece I think you're referring to is one that was actually at the Niskanen Center that just came out a mm-hmm. few days ago. And using most of the uh, the measures uh, that we have been getting the attention for evidence of a free speech crisis, we see this remarkable uh, improvement across multiple indicators sometime in, in the last 12 months, in particular, I suppose, in the last um, 14 months. So the question is why? Now, I'm not suggesting that everything is perfect on campus. I'm not suggesting that there are no challenges that face people looking to express themselves on campus. So I want to make very clear that I'm not trying to dismiss the legitimacy of anybody who feels like the climate on campus is, 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 is in some way hindered. But there is real improvement. So what does that improvement look like? Well, a lot of the media attention is focused on uh, deplatforming attempts there were about forty-three recorded deplatforming attempts in U.S. schools in 2016. That number dropped slightly to the high thirties in uh, 2017. Last year, there were nine deplatforming attempts. Now, I'm sure that that number nine—this is this is for, as recorded by the by FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education—those uh, nine recorded deplatforming attempts that that fire has i'm sure that that undercounts the full number there are still a couple cases i can think of offhand that fire does not yet have on its disinvitation data set but i think anybody who's paying attention to this issue following the news looking to see what gets circulated on social media should be able to agree that there was a sharp reduction in the number of deplatforming attempts in 2018 so that's that's one major piece of good news
0: Jeffrey, can I just get you to define what you consider to be deplatforming? De- sure. I mean, I think we understand it in the same way, but there do seem to be some misconceptions around this term. Some people seem to feel that we're just describing protests against a speaker.
1: Well, so the term that FIRE uses actually is, is a disinvitation attempt, which is a slightly more capacious ther- term than deplatforming. Uh, a disinvitation attempt, according to FIRE's criteria, is an attempt on the part of a segment of the campus community to block or prevent a speaker from speaking. And typically, what they're interested in is people who are outside guests invited to campus by, um, let's say, campus Republicans or a pro-Israeli group. And this speaker is is blocked maybe by a protest, maybe by someone pulling a fire alarm, or it could be something as, uh, as uh, something like, say, a petition circulated ahead of time, calling on the administration or the organizers of the events to rescind the invitation. So, Fire's definition of disinvitation encompasses a lot of different types of activities. There is this other subset, a narrower subset of, I think, of deplatformings, and this is a much more confrontational or aggressive tactic, where during a talk. Somebody in the audience tries to disrupt the event and hinder someone from speaking. So, uh, a very uh, you know well-known example is when Charlie Murray, uh, the, uh, the political scientist, uh, attempted uh, to speak at Middlebury College um, two years ago or uh, a year and a half ago. He was deplatformed by members of the audience because they shouted they. Uh, they, they screamed. They, in fact, attacked uh, him and the woman who, the presser who had invited him um, to talk on campus. So that's a very well-known example of a deplatforming attempt and a very extreme one. And, and I think the good mm-hmm. news is that, that those kinds of extreme deplatforming or disinvitation tactics have been on the wane. This past year, in 2018, they fell to new lows. And there's all different kinds of reasons for that. There's all kinds of hypotheses that I that I'm, I'm trying to to parse out in, in my research right now. But uh, the trend is is certainly positive insofar as we're seeing far fewer of these violent confrontational tactics used on campus.
0: That's that's fantastic. I mean, I think we all watched. Well, I watched with horror a lot of footage of deplatformings. I think about a year and a half ago, I got slightly sucked down the rabbit hole of anti-SJW porn and uh, these were speakers that I don't you know whose views I largely don't agree with and in some cases find quite personally unsympathetic as far as I can you know tell I don't know them as people I'm judging them on their political views but Jordan Peterson being drowned out by noisemakers and the same thing I think happened to Christina Hoff Summers people were blowing noisemakers and shouting chants really loudly right in front of her. And, of course, the Ben Shapiro events. And this also happened to um, my friend and and captain, Helen Pluckrose. So I um, I declare some interest here. They had a fire alarm was set off and also somebody threw a nappy, or as you Americans would call a diaper. You Americo-Canadians full of um, feces at her, which luckily missed
1: and these are terrible. These are terrible events. I, I, I'm I certainly not the kind of person who would ever excuse these events um, or these tactics.
0: And it's very different from just protesting. I mean, I also protested a speaker back when I was a faculty member myself. Charlton Heston was invited to speak at our college uh, in his capacity as a representative mm-hmm. of the NRA. And we staged a huge protest So a large group of us went to his talk and we greatly outnumbered the audience from the Student Conservative Association who had invited him. And in fact, they all sat at the very back row, the conservatives. Um, And so we completely dominated the auditorium and we were all dressed in mourning with black crepe armbands. And we had, uh, we were holding lighted candles and we were, we had a, um, Candlelit vigil for victims of gun violence afterwards, um, but nobody actually disrupted his speech. You know, he made his speech, and I remember some of the conservative students were applauding some of the things he was saying, and we were all looking sickened <laughs> and rolling our eyes and things. Um, but it was a, you know, it was a very large protest and very in your face, and I think I would have felt quite intimidated in retrospect. I'm not even so certain I feel happy about having taken part in that because we so heavily outnumbered the people who were there to support him. And I wonder, you know, whether that felt intimidating for them.
1: Well, I I think uh, I I would be hard-pressed to say that you did anything wrong in that instance. Nobody, Nobody should have the right to block or prevent an invited speaker from speaking. But by the same token, no speaker has the right to an audience of his or her choice. And in this instance, Charlton Heston encountered in the audience an overwhelmingly hostile audience. Uh, Because you didn't disrupt him, I don't think any line was crossed, but I certainly think that college students today should feel every right to go and attend an event where they vehemently disagree with the speaker and and make that known. I think that if an organization wants to have an invite-only, purely sympathetic audience, they can organize that. But for an event like the one you're describing, which I assume was open to everybody, um, I would hope that people who ca- passionately care about the issue one way or another would attend.
0: Um, I'm sorry if I'm derailing your statistics, and I do want to go back to that. but I have to sort of say things while I remember them because that's the kind of brain I have. Um, but I was you i I was just wondering, sorry, um, when you said that they should be allowed to have an invite only, event. So um, I know that, um, uh, oh, Hader Zaki and his group, The Right to Debate. I don't know if you've heard of them. I don't think so. So they spell it right and then to uh, a letter to debate. It's a UK based organization, student organization, which Hader was the head of the organization. And then after he graduated, he went to work for Quilliam, Majid mm-hmm. Nawaz's um, group, and uh, he's left Quilliam. I'm not sure what Hader is doing now, and I actually like to have him on the podcast because I think he's a wonderful and very inspiring speaker. But Hader's argument was that no speaker should be allowed to have an invitation-only audience, and his concern specifically was with, in that case, was with Islamic uh, organized societies at UK universities inviting speakers who had very extreme views ve- very extremely conservative traditional islamic views not necessarily in any way directly promoting violence but certainly very strongly homophobic views views about suitable punishments for apostates etc and that these student that these speakers were speaking to a completely tame audience of People from the Islamic society and therefore not being questioned or challenged in any way. So, Hader, I, beginning from that concern, he started this group, which is campaigning for whenever there is an especially provocative speaker coming to campus, that you should either the event should be open to everybody, so that therefore you can't um, you can place a the disinfectant of fresh air and what the person is saying, so that people are not confused about what is actually being said, and secondly, that there should be a chance for people who oppose them to to have the talk in debate form. So to put their opposing point of view, what do you think about of that idea, that proposal of haters?
1: Well, I can't say I support it. I th- I feel as if uh, I mean the purpose of Gathering together in any number of people, um, you know, speech definitely has. We value free speech because it creates opportunities to challenge uh, dogma, to shed new light on old problems, to challenge and to refine our arguments, and, and, and the entire litany of reasons that you know John Stuart Mill gives us in On Liberty for why we should value free speech, and that's all. That's all correct. Um, but as Mill also points out, and as I hope Haidar would also agree. Speech is also how we develop bonds of affection. It's how we develop solidarity. It's how we work in certain spaces to foster a shared and common understanding, one that can give us the tactics we need to solve the problems that we care about. I feel as if Haidar's, from what your description is at least, Haidar's emphasis is all on this confrontational and uh, you know, truth-finding role of speech, and not at all on this solidarity-building function of speech. Even though I think in our everyday lives we all acknowledge both are very valuable.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah, I'm not sure it's even truth finding in Haydar's case. It's just preventing a, uh, an echo chamber. I think is his concern.
1: Do you? F- I-, I guess I, I would want to ask Haidar mm. whether he would be comfortable with people attending. I don't know the the meetings of the of of the Killiam Society. Whether he would be whether he would approve, uh, you know, some uh, very conservative, very orthodox Muslim who disagrees with him attending the functions of his own organization, and whether he feels his organization can carry out its its responsibilities effectively. If any gathering of two or more members is also a space for his opponents to come gather as well and to challenge. And I, I wonder what he would say to that, but obviously I, mm, I can't
0: mm. ask him. That's an interesting, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to just answer since he's not here. <laughs> I don't know what he would answer. I think it's, I, I, I mean, I wonder how analogous those two situations are, the invited speaker coming to campus and the regular meetings of an organization.
1: Right, Because he's, uh, well, I, he
0: wasn't suggesting someone must always be present when the Islamic Society are having their meetings, or any society. I mean, he began from, his concern began with this, but he applies it across the board. It's it, only in the case of invited speakers that he wanted this to be a possibility.
1: Well, I I think maybe this speaks to a larger difficulty I have with a lot of the ways we think about uh, campus, about the university community as a special kind of community, um, a lot of the ways that people think about the university's function, this is something that's present in Heighten for Lukianov and, and Height in their work. It's present for Connor Friedersdorf's writings on this topic. We think of the campus community as purely a space of learning, of, of, um, of education, of of experiencing new ideas, and of challenging old thoughts. And so the campus is, I think, turned into uh, a public square. We think about the university as being a place mm-hmm. uh, analogous to the town square to town commons. And I don't think any educator would deny that mm. that function is one of the functions the university is there to fulfill. Um, at the same time, the university ought to serve other functions as well one of those functions ought to be as a space for people to form certain identities and to try out different uh experiences or or habits um to practice different kinds of acts um and i i think one of the ways that we do that is we we form certain uh you know um Certain subsidiary organizations, the college Republicans or the college Democrats or what mm-hmm. have you, and those certain subsidiary subsidiary organizations want to uh, work out within their own uh, group and using their own kind of uh, following their own norms uh, to try out certain kinds of speakers, certain kinds of ideas, and I think that what Haider is asking for is to dissolve those subsidiary organizations within the university into the broader mix of campus life such that anybody could attend anybody could confront and i think um, only, that that would only, do it only when they service. have
0: only when they have invited speakers but but yes partially at least
1: yes i i and i, I would be interested to know why he thinks invited speakers in particular are are, are the hill up upon which uh you know this uh this we should be fighting this terrain i wonder what is this why can't 10 muslims get together and uh, who are all students and have their own meeting in private and be uh as extreme or as moderate as they wish to be what is he i mean uh, oh no this he's is all being very with hypothetical that. now. yes yes
0: yeah. uh, um no i i know that this is specifically about the speakers yes and this could, of course, apply to any group. So I only know the details for the Islamic Society because that was the issue that that Haydar brought to light, and because yeah. I used to also be quite quite involved in Quilliam, so I know this this particular issue quite well. But it would ap- it would apply across the board. But it's not the the internal meetings. It's only when there is a lecture. Right. Um, by an invited speaker, and I think that uh, these are preachers basically who are being invited,
1: uh-huh.
0: and so I think that is the that is the issue. Of course, I belong to a religion where we do not actually allow non non members to to enter our places of worship at all, so. In theory, people could, we don't usually have sermons, actually, but in theory, people could be preaching absolutely anything inside there.
1: Right.
0: I think I don't really agree with that. I would be okay with um, Akiyaris being opened up to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, by a strange, weird autobiographical note, I am a member of this religion which um, where if you're, if you're not a Zoroastrian, you cannot, you're not allowed to go inside and see inside. Which makes it seem much more exciting than it is, and you can't right. convert to Zoroastrianism either. So, if your father was not Zoroastrian, you are out of luck. you will You will never know what you will never know what things we are plotting in there.
1: Right? Who knows what, knows what nefarious? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Uh, no, I mean to, to to use a somewhat loaded term, I. I do agree with, with some kind of, I guess what we might call a safe space in this context, that mm-hmm. uh, without certain kinds of spaces in, in circumstances like these, um, I, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to see how what I feel students should be able to get out of a university experience can be accomplished. But um, I think maybe partly what's motivating Hayard, it sounds like, is a real anxiety or, or fear, uh, justified or unjustified. About the kinds mm. of Muslim mm. clerics that are being invited, and um, I think it sounds like he believes this fear is so potent and valid that it outweighs these other kinds of, of goals. And uh, mm. I can't really and push back against uh, that without yes. getting into a long discussion of Islam.
0: Sure, and he's not—you know—he's not suggesting that the cleric should be silenced or disinvited or forbidden from speaking um, at all. He's just asking for a chance of, to respond. Right. So it is a little bit different. Thanks. I was just interested to know what you thought about that (laughs) approach. And thank you for letting Uh, me know. Of course. Um, Yeah. Let's return to the free speech um, crisis and your contention that things have got better over the past year. Um, Can you say more about that and also about why you think that is?
1: Right. So uh, I just, again, it's re. To reemphasize, um, so the deplatformings or disinvitation attempts have, have plummeted last year um, by me, by many factors. They're, they're now down to uh, about nine, and of those nine, according to FIRE, uh, only five were successful. So there has just been a clear drop in the number of disinvitation or deplatforming attempts. Um, other indicators that are very positive: the number of U.S. faculty, uh, deans, adjuncts. Professors who have been terminated for constitutionally protected uh, political speech also dropped dramatically last year. There were twenty-eight uh, faculty that I've been able to identify who were terminated for their speech last year, their political speech last year. Or, sorry, excuse me, in um in twenty seventeen, in twenty eighteen, mm-hmm. that number fell to just eight. Um, uh, the number of
0: wait. Oh- Oh, oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, Sorry, I got confused for a moment. Don't worry. Go on. In 2018, that Uh, fell to eight.
1: That's right. And then uh, also the number of, uh, well, FIRE surveys a sample of universities to assess how restrictive their speech codes are. And uh, within that sample, they found that the number of universities with the Quote red light or most restrictive speech codes, uh, fell to just 28% of universities. Now that is still a substantial number, but it it is a continuation of a decline begun in 2009 when 72% I believe of universities had the most restrictive level of speech code. So we've seen this dramatic drop that's actually accelerating uh, among universities where they're getting rid of their speech codes or uh, substantially. Reducing the kinds of, of restrictions they place on on student and faculty speech. So in all these different ways, and all these different statistics, I think we have really we're really seeing evidence of a real corner being turned in about the last year.
0: And why do you, why do you think that is? Uh, well, first of all, do you well, think it's not a little, a little soon to say that the corner has been turned?
1: I, I don't disagree. I, I, do, mm-hmm. I do state that uh, in, in, in my writings that one year does not a trend make. So it is quite possible there'll be this reversal. Um, but I'm skeptical for, for a couple different reasons. Um, now, first of all, for instance, the reduction in the number of speech codes, that is a process that has been going on uninterrupted for over a decade now. Uh, it is possible that that will reverse itself next year and we'll see more speech codes and more restrictive ones being put in place. But that reduction in most restrictive ones has been going on for 10 years. So I think it's safe to say that is a real trend.
0: That's um, great.
1: And then it is great. Absolutely, it is great. Uh, and then the other trends, like the deplatforming trend and or the reduction in deplatformings and the reduction in, in federal terminations, Um I think uh, while it is just based on this, this real improvement in last, in one year, the evidence I've I'm looking at suggests that a lot of those problems were themselves blips and were the function of an incredibly polarized atmosphere in the US in 2016 and 17 surrounding uh larger issues in US politics, specifically yeah, you're the not kidding. <laughs> campaign and the Yeah. Yeah, so uh now so I guess the argument that, that I advance is that far from being the product of a generational trend or pathology among young people where they've turned their backs on free speech. Um, I identify the cause of these problems as largely being the same problems that we see off campus. that, um, That, to a large extent, this kind of very polarized moment in American politics is due to this incredible anxiety and anger or joy surrounding the election of and the campaign of Donald Trump. Um, Without taking a stance on the Trump administration, I think we can all agree that there was this enormous anxiety for many people.
0: Mm. And when
1: you actually speak to the participants in these um, deplatforming events like the one at Middlebury, for instance, they specifically explain why they did what they did as being due to the change in campus climate after Trump launched his campaign. Whether that is a a justification or a valid explanation um, is beside the point. But it's it seems to, there seems to be a strong link between that larger political issue, which is very localizable within this basically uh, you know two two year period, and this real uh, explosion of free speech issues in twenty sixteen and seventeen.
0: I think that that is a. Um... You're highlighting here a mistake that I feel a lot of people, a lot of sort of centrist thinkers who I follow make, which is that they talk a great deal about how the excesses of the social justice left are driving people rightwards. And I think that's true. I mean, I don't think it's a full explanation, of course, but I think that it's a little nudge that will send people who are already heading in that direction probably – make them more likely to go in that direction. But equally, the the election of Trump, which uh, I'm going to take a stance on, which I think was an absolute and unmitigated disaster, and I agree with Sam Harris on this, I think that if given the choice between Trump and any member of the American public chosen completely at random by picking a name out of the hat, <laughs> I would vote for the second option. Not that I had a vote in well, the US election, but... <laughs>
1: There there are some pretty awful people out there, but, you know, there might be something to that that lottery method there. I'll take my
0: chances. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, it could go wrong, but I would take my chances on that. So I think that that election really polarized people on the left. And I saw that among my friends, um, my Facebook friends, almost all of whom are left-leaning people, I would say 95%. Of my real life friends are strongly and consistently left leaning, mm-hmm. and really the rhetoric after Trump's election became so extreme that, uh, and you know, people just there was a there was a level of kind of hysteria and unhelpful extreme extreme rhetoric that I think was ju- was absolutely a response to Trump's election. The Trump's election also nudged people to more, to greater extremes on the left. So it's like a ping pong ball. And the kind of Dave Rubins of the world who concentrate only on one side of it, oh, it's these crazy blue haired leftists on campus who are driving people right. It's, it's also crazy, blue rinse, right people who are driving people left.
1: Well, I certainly would agree that the causes of the leftward shift among young people this acceleration of, of commitments to um, you know social justice positions that's a separate issue that that's a question of that is a generational trend for certain we can talk about that in a second mm, mm. but the adoption of specific confrontational tactics like deplatforming yes um, and that I think is something that we can locate, as having its origins much more specifically in the anxiety of twenty sixteen and seventeen, so I think the there are certainly there were larger environmental factors that are 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 shaping the way generation Z or igen or if you want to call it young people are thinking but um the tactics that they use this the shift towards confrontation that is i think my 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 assessment is that that's very much a product of the trump uh, campaign and election
0: oh good so. Hopefully, that will be a temporary phenomenon.
1: Well, that's certainly <laughs> my hope as well. Um, the question, of course, is, you know, will this be reignited in the next election cycle? Um, my guess is probably it won't, only because I think people are operating in 2016 uh, and 17 from a position of pure shock. Mm. And, you know, that that shock has already passed. Um, we've, we're already seeing shifts in the kinds of uh, activism uh, on campus now, where it's less and less about uh you know this kind of confrontation and more about political organizing and cultivation of and solidarity and, and I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention you know this the the other side of this trend, and that is that in twenty sixteen and seventeen there were a lot of people for sincere and unsincere reasons who were seeking to invite intentionally inflammatory speakers to campus, or at least inflammatory according to the standards of the left. Mm-hmm. Um, with the intent of stoking outrage. Of
0: people. Yep.
1: Milo is a great example, right? Or, uh, you know, and Richard Spencer is another example. Um, those people uh, who are inviting these kinds of guests, um, you know, if you just speak to them, if you look at uh, solid journalism on conservative activism and its evolution in the last two years on campus, there's been a turn against that kind of purposeful inflaming of campus, uh, tensions and a drive instead towards inviting speakers of substance. Um, and certainly, you know, there'll always be someone on campus who will look at a conservative speaker, no matter how even tempered and moderate he or she might be, and decide that this person is the devil. There'll always be those kinds of unreasonable people on campus. But, um, you know, uh, Milo 's Eclipse has many different sources, but one of them is just that he's not getting invited. The,
0: yeah. you know conservatives
1: yeah. less and less want him on campus they would they will prefer to not associate with him and i I view that as well as a shift uh, you know that is one to applaud and one that also owes its its origins in part to the kind of the waning of this this Trumpian moment in 2016 and 17.
0: I also wonder whether outrage has its own sort of um, uh, obsolescence. It has a kind of inbuilt obsolescence. Inevitably, people are going to get fatigued at some point. If you're outraged about everything, there's going to come a point where even people on your own side are going to be like, oh, whatever. And I think you put that really nicely in in your article, in one of your articles, Oh, yes, you said, it was your article for the Niskanen Center, which I'll link to in the show notes. In other words, it is probably not that students are suddenly being won over by Mills's On Liberty, nor is it that they now see the value of what Charlie Kirk or Ben Shapiro bring to campus. Rather, it is just that they are beginning to find them boring. This might not sound like tolerance, but it is. I thought that was a very astute point.
1: Yeah, I think uh I don't I I think, you know, as much as I might like to believe that um students are, you know, this so much more committed to uh free speech now and and they were not uh, you know, 6 months or a year ago. I don't believe that that kind of very you know, kind of sharp shift is is really what's going on here. Uh much more so I think that students were responding uh, by and large, to a position of of perceived vulnerability uh, in two thousand and sixteen and seventeen, and that vulnerability has been waning. That that sense of vulnerability has been has been waning. Now that's a generalization. Plenty of students still feel vulnerable. Plenty of students' sense of vulnerability has nothing to do with Trump. So you know there are caveats to that statement, but uh, I think increasingly people are looking at Ben Shapiro when he comes to campus and, and greeting him with a yawn. Mm
0: -hmm. And,
1: you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've managed, I think, to track down more, you know, reporting, campus reporting on basically every single appearance by Ben Shapiro or Charlie Kirk or Candace Owens on a university or college campus in 2018. And again and again, uh, you know, no disruptions are reported. There's a couple hostile questions, but nothing very mean. Sometimes what will happen is there'll be a silent protest where a segment of the audience stands up mid-speech and walks away. But uh, that sense of deep anxiety that we used to see, well, now now instead these people are being greeted with more or less a shrug. And uh, you know, there's some really there's been some hilarious examples actually where. A speaker, conservative uh, speakers on campus say, and he or she actually will complain about the lack of protests. Uh, Mark Krikorian, a uh, staunch immigration hawk who wants to shut off all illegal immigration to the U.S. and, and most legal immigration to the U.S., he, um, at least that's my understanding, he uh, complained at one point that he was not being protested. He, he feels like it's <laughs> an insult. Um, it is. Uh, Steve, <laughs> yeah, for a certain kind of, of of you know speaker, maybe it is. Oh, yeah, that he's not important is important enough. Uh, Steve, <laughs> exactly. Um, Steve Crowder, you know the uh, the uh, comedian and mm-hmm. and right. I'm not sure how to advise politics. I think he's on the right. Um, but he uh, was scheduled to give a speak at I believe the University of Illinois, and it was canceled. He immediately took to Twitter to explain that he was deplatformed by a hostile administration. In reality, it was an issue that he caused by by the way he was setting up his stage, the lighting and stuff. And it was this, uh, but there's so much cachet, I think, with being deplatformed for a certain kind of speaker that uh, they're responding to the improvements of 2018 with with disappointment, which I think is, is almost hilarious.
0: Oh, I love it. That makes me so happy, because I think that's one of the things that most annoyed me about the deplatforming is that, it's led to the glamorization of some people who, from my point of view, you are, uh, you are so beautifully um, careful and um, uh, neutral and um, objective. And I'm not going to be. I'm going to just pin my colors to the mast that, you know, I think these people are boring, old fashioned traditionalists. And it has given them a kind of street cred that I, I find very disappointing and annoying so I'm very glad if that is not happening as much.
1: That's my sense. Yes, that uh you know when you look at <laughs> you know people like Ben Shapiro are always going to claim that you know that their greatest strength is their ability to trigger liberals and make the snowflakes melt and um you know their ability to do that is I think very much on the wane on campuses. And that's not to say that there won't be some new outrage tomorrow or some uh, you know, imminent uh, scandal on campus that's going to make everything worse, and uh, that that is always a possibility. But the trend lines are so positive right now that um, I think you know it's it's incumbent on us to do a couple different things. It's incumbent on us to first reevaluate the kind of legislation and policy responses that states and boards of regents and administrations put in place in the last two years. Uh, whether or not these new laws, for instance, that have been developed by a couple different states uh, to attempt to regulate protests or discipline students, whether those are well thought out, and then uh, the other thing I think it's that is incumbent on us to to think about is whether or not the kinds of generational trends that Height and Lukyanov or uh, Manning and uh, and Campbell point to, whether those can really explain student behavior the way I think they. They believe it does.
0: So I'd like to um, move on a little bit to Manning and Campbell's views on victimhood culture. Mm -hmm. So um, for listeners, Manning and Campbell were guests on this podcast. So if you look back in in the past episodes, you'll find that we did an episode with them on victimhood culture. And the way that they describe it makes it seem like an enormous and potentially long lasting shift because they talk about. Three eras: an era, an, an era of honor culture, or dominated by honor culture, then a dignity culture, and then a victimhood culture. That it's it's not just about a culture on campuses, i.e., it's not about the particular stage in life that they are going through, because I think we can all we all know that there is a People behave a little differently. The culture is a little different when you are 18 than when you are 28 or 48 or whatever. But that this is an actual generational cohort phenomenon. This um, jockeying for victimhood, what people are calling the oppression Olympics, which I've definitely observed. And also this perception that students have that they are vulnerable which is something that I've also observed so I remember at university feeling that some people's views and ideas were extremely wrong-headed or even selfish or evil or callous and I was quite extreme in my political views as a student but I didn't feel that the expression of those ideas made me vulnerable and I mean, I'm not a member of a visible minority group. I am a member of a tiny minority, but it's it's not very obvious. But I I don't remember students from racial minorities, for example, visible race, racial minorities, or um, gay students expressing themselves in terms of vulnerability. And hmm. I I remember it being it was we were sort of angry. And pissed off and self-righteous and screechy and all those kinds of things that students are accused of being. And I think we have to we need to cut students some slack in that sense. But I don't remember any discourse around vulnerability. And it's this shift to vulnerability which which I think is very interesting and which is part of Bradley and Manning's hypothesis. And then it's also really a subset of the hypothesis that Haidt and Lukianov present in The Coddling of the American Mind. And likewise, Haidt and Lukianov were also on this podcast to discuss that book. So if you look back in past episodes, you will see that we interviewed with Helen Pluckrose. I interviewed Haidt and Lukianov. So how do you feel about those theories? Do you think that there has been a shift? And if so, why? If not, why not? Or...
1: Well, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very skeptical there's been a shift, but I, I certainly wouldn't discount it. For, for all the reasons that you caution your viewers not to extrapolate too much from 2018's improvement on campus, I would caution your, re, your, your listeners to be, cautious, uh, to, to, to be skeptical about claiming that there's a shift among this generation when this generation is still very young. We don't know yet what of their habits is due to them being young and what is likely to stick as they age. Because you're right, young people do often adopt strange positions and do often, uh, you know, emphasize feelings of anger or vulnerability that lapse or or change as they as they grow older. So we don't know yet. Um, now, when you look at iGen, which is the term for those born after 1995 that uh, Height and Lukianov use, this is uh, a term coined by the social psychologist Jean Twangy to describe this generation influenced by. Uh, tablets and, and 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 phones. Some, some iPhones, people are calling them Gen Z as well.
0: Um, I Gen or Gen Z? Yeah,
1: Gen Z is a term. <laughs> right, Gen Z, I think, is a term that Pew is using, and that they're trying to make the standard term. There's a there's a bit of a difference. Gen Z is everybody born, I believe, 1997 and forward. I Gen is, I think, beginning 1995 or 2000 or 1996. But they're basically the same, the same group, the same cohort. And uh, I, we can speak more about about um, height and looking off in a second. But I do have major concerns with Manning and Campbell's. Yes, let's, argument start, with them. About, let's start with
0: that argument.
1: Yes, yeah. so so yeah, you're pretty right. And their, their argument is that there are these three different uh, types of cultures in in recent human history, and we've had a culture of honor turning into a culture of dignity, turning now into a culture of victimhood. And you said it yourself when you said that these were the dominant cultures. And I think that word dominant works in two ways here. But the way I, I think what, what, what you're referring to is that if you were a member of a dominant group in one of these periods, then you subscribed to a culture of honor or a culture of dignity. Um, if you were a member of uh, an oppressed group or a marginalized group or a weaker or subservient group, then you could not afford, for instance, to have your, to protect your honor. Um, You could not afford to demand vengeance. You could not afford to assert your dignity. You, in a sense, had no choice. What, uh, you know, there's this wonderful philosopher, uh, professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto named Regina Rini, who I encourage your listeners to, to follow on Twitter and read some of her work. And she points out that Manning and Campbell are really, what they're describing is they're describing the the self-described or self-presented culture of dominant groups And any could I, could I
0: just um, and, uh, pause you there for a second? Because although course. I can see how you wouldn't be able to assert your honor if you were part of a subordinate group, although even, even then I think – you couldn't assert your honor over some against somebody from the dominant group, so you could still get in a fist fight with someone from your group who insulted your mum, for example. That would be an honor culture. You told her your mom joke and I will fight but, you. But uh, you can surely always assert your dignity. Dignity culture is always a choice. This is the kind of stoic option.
1: And but is, is it a it, well? I, my my question would be: Is it a posture? Adopted because of a deeply felt stoicism, uh, or is it because uh, one has no other option? You know, I think here of you know uh, of uh, a black American, someone in the South in the 1950s when this culture of dignity was at its height, according to Demanding uh, and Campbell. Um, when they're taunted by um, or mocked by uh, someone who's white, you know their their response to assert their dignity and to adopt a posture of Stoicism, that's not necessarily driven because of any deeply held commitment to Stoicism, but rather because the alternative is risking their life of drawing attention and, and potentially being being hit, you know, killed. So I, I guess there, there's questions about why it is, is Stoicism obtained?
0: Yes and no, I think. The example of this that immediately comes to mind is Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning. Okay. I don't know if you've read that book. So he, he's writing about his experiences in a concentration camp. And he takes uh-huh. a Stoic philosophy, uh, a Stoic approach, and he says that the, your dignity is the one thing that cannot ever be taken from you. So I'm going to tear uh-huh. up if I start reading from Frankel. Um, <laughs> so in a, is it a choice? Well, yes and no. I mean, I don't know that we can get into Stoicism in a lot of detail here, but for the Stoics, it's in a sense, it's always the only legitimate choice because you don't have control over fate. So your your legitimate choice, of course, you can take certain actions or not, but your only kind of dignified choice is this attitude which Frankl takes which is the attitude of my dignity cannot be taken from me under any circumstances.
1: So in my understanding I guess the question is does the Stoicism that Franco describes recommend to us a position of, of fatalism of, 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 of kind of Sisyphean acceptance of our fate?
0: So I would say that acceptance Well, in the Stoic philosophy, acceptance of the fate and fatalism are two slightly different things. You have the choice. You have the things you cannot control, which is fate and also other people's actions and attitudes towards you. Mm -hmm. So, and you have the things that you can control, which is your own words and actions. Those are the only things that you can control. And so... It's not fatalist in that it's not a suggestion that you should not take any actions. You should take whatever actions you think might stand a chance of improving your situation or improving the situation of others. But at the same time, you have to, you cannot fight against things. that You, should, you shouldn't waste energy in attempting to change things that you don't have control over. I mean, there's a certain self-evident quality to it. But I think this is the basis of dignity culture. It's about not reducing yourself down to their level. Mm -hmm. And I think this is also very much the Viktor Frankl's attitude. And I think that because, because that's about a... It's about an attitude that you aspire to. So therefore, whether or not you have the ability to take... Revenge, say in other ways, so you don't have the ability to fight a duel with a concentration uh, camp guard. That's not an option you have, but that can still be slightly separate from whether you think fighting a duel is a desirable thing. And attitudes towards that changed in the really in the early eighteenth century, and they changed among people for for whom it slowly, but they changed among people for whom it was a possibility. So the ideal, the ideal changed, rather than just the possibilities that were open to people. The way in which it was viewed changed.
1: I mean, thinking about this, you know, uh, put on like a political science cap, I would look at the decline of dueling in Europe, and this is just speculation, but I would look at the decline of dueling in Europe or North America, not as due to a shift in culture, but rather as a shift in state capacity, as states grow stronger, and seek to monopolize you know, violence, legitimate violence. They pass laws that uh, criminalize duels and substitute them with uh, with you know, judicial processes. The culture, I'm sure, shifts as well, but it, it's driven by a recognition by the state that uh, this kind of social practice is, is harmful for the state's objectives. What I think where the analogy breaks down, perhaps, is that currently we don't recognize the grievances, uh, by and large, uh, that people, the young people, are respond to today, as legitimate threats, as real threats. In quite the same way, uh, the state, in you know the year seventeen hundred or eighteen hundred, could identify uh, you know certain kinds of practices as harmful and could pass legislation. To end those practices, states and culture in general today don't recognize the kinds of injustices uh, or perceived injustices uh, that young people are responding to, or at least don't, don't take them quite as, as seriously. I think the classic example that Campbell and many point to is microaggressions, right? So they largely dismiss the validity of microaggressions as a concept. They think that. Uh, and this, and and I know height agrees with this that microaggressions um, uh, don't merit the kind of um, response, and and don't uh, are not properly understood as uh, should be understood as problems the way that young people today often feel they do. So I think what's going on here is pro- go ahead. I'm um, not being very clear, so I want you to intercede and, and help me out here.
0: Well. I disagree with you about dueling, but I don't want to go into that in too much detail. But there is a question here of chicken and egg, which came first. Was the law changed when attitudes changed or did the law change because attitudes had changed previously? Mm -hmm. So there are the two things. There's the legal mechanisms and also there are people's attitudes. And we can see those definitely playing off against each other. The recent decriminalization of homosexuality in India last year, the repeal of Indian Legal Code 377, which uh, condemned homosexuals to life imprisonment. Right. That was partly a result of people's campaigns. And however, also, as soon as the law changed, a lot of people's public statements changed and they pretended they had always been against this law. Uh, including people who had been up, you know, upholding that law as something that should be preserved in the Indian Constitution until the very moment at which it was repealed. Right. So you know, when the law changed, public opinion was seen to have changed and they didn't want to be sort of trapped on the wrong side of history. Right. So we can see a certain kind of hypocrisy happening. Uh, I would say, I guess a kind of beneficial hypocrisy in a way. Mm-hmm. Because Absolutely. I don't, I mean, in some sense, I don't mind them pretending that they always felt that way. I think that that will, that is in itself something that is going to continue to nudge people in the direction of a more liberal attitude. But, but you know, of course, many, many homopho- homophobia remains very, very prevalent in Indian society. So there's also social attitudes lag behind legislation. hmm so, both things happen, and it's really hard to unpick which caused what and In the case of microaggressions, I think that i for me, the problem with microaggressions is that the larger the larger things that they are intended to illustrate are definitely concerns, but the actual microaggressions themselves seem so counterproductive, petty. And I think traditionally microaggressions are even categorized in a way that takes intention out of the equation. So you can commit a microaggression without even meaning to. Right. And that seems so likely to make people extraordinarily self-conscious in ways that I think are very unhelpful to have us focused on differences between each other, like racial differences In a way that I also think is really unhelpful. Uh And I think that there is a danger also of kind of wolf crying. And I think a lot of conservative commentators have benefited from this. Of course, the fact that conservative commentators have exploited or benefited from something doesn't mean that thing itself is bad. Right. You know, people are always going to exploit whatever they can. And that doesn't mean to say that the thing itself is wrong. Agreed. Yes. It's not all tactics. There are also things that are right or wrong. It's not all about, you know, tactics, but I do feel that the microaggression concept has been in general, a very harmful concept. And I, I'd love to hear your views on this.
1: I agree with you that any individual microaggression, any act perceived by someone as, as a microaggression on its own, it is petty. it is small, right in isolation, that one event doesn't merit the kind of response that they sometimes receive and i don 't think any I, I honestly don't think any person who supports the concept of microaggressions would disagree with that. The obvious response though is that microaggressions are never in isolation and they never happen just one at a time they are part of identifiable patterns, at least to the, the, the person who is on the receiving end. Systemic processes whereby the same kind of microaggression or a or, uh, you know, similar genre of microaggression is received again and again and again. Now, perhaps it is the case that that kind of repeated microaggression, in any individual case, the response should be a polite uh, you know, just to make you aware, when you ask me, where am I really from, that's insulting. You know, I, I perceive that as being insulting. But I first of all I think that's unrealistic. And second of all, I think that there is a certain level at which we can hold and should hold people responsible for not thinking or not extending a certain level of consideration to others. Now, if I ask somebody, where where are you really from? Let's say I'm asking an Asian American person, where, where are you really from? Uh, I don't mean California. I don't mean uh, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. I mean, that on its own is a minor mistake, a faux pas, as, as Jonathan Haidt would, would, would describe it. But it betrays as well a kind of, I think, uh, lack of consideration and lack of thoughtfulness and lack of curiosity that... Um, we easily afford ourselves when we're members of dominant groups and uh, never pause to consider how they might be perceived by non-dominant groups. And I think it's that lack of consideration that rightly bothers a lot of people. Because you're right, the act in and of itself, taken in isolation, is a very small one. But if it speaks to a kind of uh, dismissiveness towards other people and their experiences, then that's something that might be appropriately met with a certain level of anger or frustration.
0: Hmm. I mean, I really disagree with this. Um,
1: (laughs) Of course. um,
0: (laughs) Of course. And um, I am a double immigrant, I guess. I immigrated from Pakistan to the UK, and now I live in Argentina. Mm -hmm. Um, So I get this question daily. Um, And I I guess I don't get the where are you really from, but people ask me where I'm from uh, all the time. And I actually think that it is a, of course, it, it always depends on the person, the tone of voice, etc., in the situation. And I can imagine, although I haven't experienced it, but of course I haven't experienced, my experiences are not the gamut of possible experiences. I can see how it could be framed in a hostile way, but usually I feel it's just curiosity and friendliness and it's just people attempting to strike up conversation and I've taken to asking it back myself so I say well you know my mother was from here and my father was from here and I grew up in X and um, and then I always ask where are you from Uh, well I ask since mostly the people I'm talking to are clearly Argentine and almost always clearly porteños I ask did you grow up here in Buenos Aires in Capital? And how about your parents? Did they also grow up in Capital? And so I asked the question back to them and I find that gets very good responses from people.
1: Am I so, right in thinking that the the reason why you do that is in part to kind of uh, show them that their own thinking is a bit limited when they when they ask you that question? No, it's a kind I of pedagogical. Don't really-
0: Yeah, I know, actually, no, I'm genuinely interested in (laughs) where people are from. And I want to create a more two-way conversation. And I think that, so I think people are a little bit clumsy sometimes in the way they phrase this question. But Mm -hmm. if you see somebody who is Indian, for example, Indian from India, let's say, Mm -hmm. and you ask them where they're from, and they say Austin, Texas, I'm always a little bit disappointed about that. Also because I am half Indian myself. So when I ask, I actually say, you know, my father was Indian Parsi, where were your parents from? Um, you know, sometimes I ask, were you know, if you were your parents born here and or raised here in Texas too? And so there are there are better and worse ways of framing the question, but I also I'm quite disappointed when my question is really about the person's family background on a longer scale over more than one generation and their answer is i'm californian i mean it's interesting in itself too and i don't think they're any less californian for having that history as well i just think that it's it's interesting to know people's history and backgrounds i guess
1: i i agree of course you know th- it's it's wonderful to know people's backgrounds and, and ask them questions uh to to identify where they're from. I do think that for many people when they ask that question, especially when they follow it up with the dreaded no, where are you really from, <laughs> what they're signaling, I think I, I think you know it's, it's pretty clear, is they're signaling uh, that the person they're talking to doesn't really belong with with the pers- with the asker's image of what hmm. their country, their community looks like. Maybe, right? they're, maybe they're signaling, well, you're not really Argentine, you're not really English, you're not really American. They're, they're they're asserting that because of your race or your accent or your religion, you're not really a member of my community.
0: Maybe, although although when I tell them I'm an Ameri- uh, um, American, <laughs> uh, when I tell them I'm an Argentine citizen, then. Uh, Their response is always, "Ooh, how how nice! Yes, you are one of us." Uh You know, even though their previous question is yes. So I think that I feel like having had this question a lot and and often in quite clumsy ways, and I. Occasionally, I'm in a really bad mood and I don't feel like answering, and I just tell them it's complicated <laughs> and give them a kind uh-huh. of dirty look, you know, because one can't always be friendly and accommodating. Uh-huh. But usually, I try to answer in a way that gives people the benefit of the doubt. And I find that when I do that, people's intentions are well, I th- either their intentions were never hostile to begin with, or this approach is disarming enough that the hostility can be usually diffused. Of course, I'm sure there are some complete assholes who, out there. I don't, I don't want to deny that in any way. But I feel that the microaggressions concept makes people paranoid. It makes you overestimate the number of assholes. And it prevents you from giving people the benefit of the doubt. And I think the benefit of the doubt is very... Important and may even change some people's bad attitudes. May actually even get some people on site.
1: Well, I, I think my response is that either way, your solution or my solution. Uh, mm. What we're what we're asking for is someone to change their behavior and their response, right? Mm. Um, mm. What you're yeah. essentially asking for, what what you're what you're asking for is, I think, what we can make pejoratively call the uh, the, the, the suck it up kind of response <laughs> or just. <laughs> You know uh, the, the deal with it it's a small thing, it's petty, maybe yeah. you hurt your feelings momentarily, but get over it, be an adult, stop being well, a victim
0: well i, I um, prefer I prefer to see it as a stoic approach, so you can only control your own behavior, so you change your own behavior and of I mean that certainly confirms
1: of Haneda, uh, respectability <laughs>
0: <laughs> of course, I think that um, we should also we should also discourage people from asking where are you really from and I think. I don't think we should discourage people's curiosity, but I think we should suggest, okay, if you you are interested in this, there's a much nicer way of asking, you know, a much friendlier way of asking, and why not volunteer some information about yourself, your background, your parents as well? Make it a two-way well. conversation, not an interrogation.
1: Uh, I think you agree more with the purveyors of the microaggression idea than than maybe maybe you know because Jeffrey, I take that as a
0: microaggression. I don't
1: think that. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, this conversation's over. I, I failed. Um, You're cancelled. No, the I young think, people I. I, I, I mean, <laughs> you 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 said yourself that we should perhaps discourage the follow up, but know where you <laughs> yeah. really from. Even if that question is asked with no ill intent, it's I think displays a kind of stubborn belief that this person doesn't really belong. Um, so I, I think we agree that there are certain kinds of questions that even if there's no intent attached to them, and even if this person is maybe asking this question for the first time uh, in their life, it can st- it's still something that we should care about, and that maybe we should discourage, maybe not through publicly shaming them on the internet. Obviously, I hate that kind of thing. But we should nevertheless say, hey, look, you should know that question raises my ire for, for this reason. And uh, it's the kind of thing that in the future you need to avoid or you should avoid. W- would you object to that kind of response?
0: No, I mean, I don't No, Because I think that would be a very um, fair and sort of mild response, actually, to say this makes me annoyed for these reasons. Um, I think that's, that's an okay response in my book.
1: It's maybe something more severe, or maybe uh, when someone deploys it, yeah, with a hair trigger, when it's hair really trigger, kind of or also when
0: it's you. really catastrophized. I feel as though hmm. so I do have the I do have there is a problem of perception, and this may get us into the kind of territory of standpoint epistemology. Right. On the one hand, I'm certain that racism exists, and I also think that I'm rarely a of I'm rarely a victim of this, in fact I can't think of any time when I think that I have been treated in a way that I definitely would ascribe to racism
1: mm-hmm.
0: but there are some borderline examples um, and I certainly had better treatment In I mean I certainly felt more at home in India when I once I got rather tanned and I looked more Indian but I don't know that I would say that beforehand people were being racist so I don't feel I've ever been a victim of racism, but that doesn't mean to say that racists don't exist. And I have actually once or twice witnessed people being very racist and heard people saying racist things. But I think also I don't I I probably encounter it less than less than the norm. So my bias right. I was, I was my bias to is to the... underestimate. But I
1: mm-hmm.
0: also I'm I'm sure some people also have a really strong bias to overestimate. And I think that that's something that I saw happening during the Covington Catholic thing, that a lot of people oh. were... So that, that event was quite complicated. Um, that school does not sound like a wonderful institution, I have to say. Um, I've been reading up some of the <sighs> stories about things that have happened at the school. I also you know I I also have a little bit of a visceral response to people wearing maga caps. Actually I think I've never seen anybody wear a maga cap in real life, but I haven't spent that much time
1: in the states. Oh boy, I've seen so many. <laughs> I have, Oh, I mean I mean here in Canada students will wear it and people in the community will wear it to to kind of right, assert something. Right. It's uh it, it makes zero sense, but then having a confederate flag and a truck in Canada makes um, no sense, and plenty oh, of people right. have that as yeah. well.
0: I mean, I kind of ignore both those things, um, but I think I have a certain slight visceral response to it. But I also, people were projecting so many of their own experiences onto the face of the young man, the guy who was you know uh, standing mm-hmm. there whilst the Native American guy was drumming, and just taking that on its own, not looking at any of the other context, um, whether or not the boys behaved badly or whatever, I think they kind of behaved like pillocks, actually, I have to say. Uh-huh. They behaved like kind of really annoying schoolboys. That was my general feeling. But it was just fascinating to see how much people read uh-huh. into that facial expression. And it was ju- it was partly the camera angle. So... I don't agree that it's a normal thing to do to stand smiling okay. um, like that. I, would have, I, I feel like I would have moved out of the way, but I don't want to read too much into that. But when I saw it from another camera angle from further away um, and from more kind of straight on, it no longer looked like so much of a smirk because the face was more symmetrical and a smirk is kind of asymmetrical. So people saw literally half the face, And they said, I have seen that expression so many times. This happened to me last time. And last time I saw that expression, it was this guy who sexually abused me. And it was this other person who cut me off in traffic. And it was this guy who was really nasty. And it was this other uncle of mine who always spouts racist things. Um, There was such a palimpsest of other experiences being projected Onto that, so many personal stories being projected onto there, which, whether or not the guy himself did anything wrong, those stories had nothing to do with him, and that was fascinating to me. And I feel that that I'm just very aware of that danger when it comes to racist things, especially when somebody was a jerk to you, and it's really hard to know why. And I I notice it in myself too. Um, that if somebody is a jerk to me on twitter my immediate feeling is this person is a misogynist they hate women well maybe they just hate me you know or maybe they're just are generally a, an asshole <laughs> you know right. i i i leap to this conclusion to this narrative and i think that that is i see that happening a lot and that concerns
1: me right Oh, I think that that should concern us, right? I think any time people leap to uh, an assumption like that, without you know, especially I think you know this Covington case was concerning uh, for all the reasons that you described. That we don't, you know, as more videotape came forward, as better angles and longer shots uh, came forward, uh, my understanding, you know, reading just the same journalism, I'm sure you read, that it sounds like this was a much more complicated event. And uh, it is is unfortunate, it is wrong for people to take this smiling, white, male, uh, Christian, MAGA-supporting individual and projecting upon him every possible negative experience that they've had, and then using that as a license to effectively attempt to destroy his life. Um, I mean, that's completely beyond the pale, and, and, uh, you know leftist sjw that i am i still can see how wrong that is um now uh stipulating all that
0: i mean that's not a leftist that's of course not an exclusively leftist uh phenomenon none of these things are i'm critiquing them on the left right now because i'm talking to you but um i i also really resist this narrative that oh, it's leftists who are anti-free speech and it's leftists who are kind of exaggerating and are snowflakes and are generalizing. No, that's humans. Mm. That's not leftists. That's a phenomenon you can see happening with left-wing kind of uh, incarnations and right-wing incarnations.
1: But I I I think what this comes down to in this case, and this is, again, my armchair sociological analysis, is that what it comes down to is for a long time, and still to a very large extent, claims of um, of injury, of offense, claims of um, you know racial bias, you know, they're, they're just not taken as seriously or recognized as often uh, by dominant actors in society as a lot of people feel that they should. Right? I'm sure you understand the basic contours of this argument that. Uh, You know, there is this. uh, We can we have a discussion about whether or not it's a valid belief, but you know, there is a a widespread belief that this kind when people are referencing their experiences and projecting them upon this Covington kid, it's because those experiences never get recognized normally. You know, there's never a videotape when someone smirks at you because you're gay, and there's never a videotape when someone laughs or confronts you or or microaggresses against you because you're black. Right. It's these rare instances when there is a videotape and it seems to tell a very clear cut story. People leap to that. They respond to that. I think at a very human yes. level.
0: It's, it's, yes, it's scapegoating. It's the, it's, um, I feel like we all need to go back and reread Rene Girard's Violence in the Sacred. Hmm. It's, I mean, sometimes, sometimes the incident in itself is also bad. The person has really done something wrong. But the scapegoating is always quite – quickly becomes quite terrifying because that one person, because we have the video, is carrying so much of our ire.
1: I mean, this is the social media effect, right, I think. Yes. And, and, and yes, we can have – a yes. we can talk about that. But I do really want to emphasize, you know, I do think that these things happen. Like, legitimate problems, legitimate complaints that people have so rarely go recognized in our culture. And they build up. And I, I don't think that's the kind of thing that we can just acknowledge and move past. We need to actually weigh that when we diagnose why these things happen. And there there's no more clear-cut example that leaps to mind at this moment than the fact, this weird tick, for instance, that we have in media right now, at least in English language, North American media of referring to racist acts as racially charged or racially tinged. Um, when a congressperson makes a racist, a racist statement, we are so enormously sensitive uh, about not calling it racist. Um, and I think that kind of gaslighting infuriates so many people and is an obvious barrier to uh, any kind of social progress that you're right, people then target that towards one person who is emblematic of this larger problem, rightly or wrongly.
0: Uh, Oh, yes, I agree with you. I think there was a really egregious example of that recently. And now my name aphasia is playing (laughs) up. Um, Where, yeah, I mean, the statement was very... Clearly racist, and then it was described as a kind of controversial statement or something.
1: Right, you might be thinking of was it Steve King, the U.S. congressman?
0: Yes, I was. I am thinking of Steve King. Yes,
1: yeah. Uh, where for your listeners, he 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 basically gave a quote to the New York Times where he talked about. Something, he said something effective like, "When did things like Western civilization, Western supremacy, and white supremacy become such bad terms?" And, you know, the, the presence of white supremacy in there. That, and, and, of course, this comes in the context of Steve K.'s larger career, where he's made any number of blatantly racist remarks. But um, – I can't, I can't believe he didn't just say this that to
0: trigger people and get Well, publicity. he definitely succeeded. I think he, he attracted <laughs> yeah, so. some
1: publicity that he's going to be primaried in the coming election. At least that's the, that's the way hell. it looks in Iowa. No, so this is just to say that, I mean, I, again, I, I – I did not follow the Covington case as well as a lot of people. I didn't look at it as closely as a lot of people. And I've talked very little about it online or anywhere else um, because of that. Mm -hmm. But I I
0: I followed it obsessively, I have to say. I thought it was fascinating. I mean, not the case itself, but just people's responses. Right. Right. But yeah,
1: carry on. No, just to to say that, uh, you know, if it is the case, you know, indeed that this kid did Nothing wrong, or much less wrong, or less wrong than than he was accused of doing initially. You know, then, uh, you know, there is something harmful about the way who responded. Without question, mm-hmm. I do think what the t- the temptation is, I think, for some for critics of the left's response to this event or the centrist response to the event is to say is to just ignore the context in which this happened. This and. Because we divorce it of context, it makes people's response seem so irrational and virtually psychotic that, uh, you know, it, again, is the way of just ignoring these larger problems that never get attention because there's not a camera rolling and there's not a videotape of it.
0: I think that there is – I mean, I do blame the social justice left, or I feel that they um, – they, you – well, not you personally, Jeffrey um, – <laughs> But that kind of grouping or movement does bear some responsibility, some partial responsibility for this really strong stereotyping that I notice going on in American media. And I mean, from all sides, this is not a left-wing phenomenon. I want to just stress Mm -hmm. that strongly. If I felt this were a left-wing phenomenon or predominantly a left-wing phenomenon, I would probably not be part of the left because, you know, I think it's one of the most dangerous and pernicious aspects of human nature, but I don't think that at all. So
1: which, which stereotyping phenomenon are you referring to?
0: So I'm going to just quote something that someone I follow on Twitter said, Mm -hmm. says one of the, I mean, I think she's a more right-leaning, but she's one of the more cynical people I follow on Twitter. So she has bad things to say about all sides. So I'm going to just paraphrase this person who I follow, who's called Antihero Kate, Antihero, and then there's an underscore Kate, is her handle, and what she said was, "Look at this immigrant committing a crime. Look at this white person spewing racism. Look at this, um, look at this Muslim person being anti-Semitic. Can we stop all of this?" Can can we stop all of this trashy generalizations about groups based on single examples of bad behaviour?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I haven't put it as eloquently as she did, but but I have to say that I I absolutely agree and I feel that this emphasis I mean I understand why the left has taken this emphasis on diversity, on diverse identities why it's important to not discriminate against people based on their identities, but I prefer that negative approach to it, don't discriminate, to this kind of what began, I think, as a positive celebration, but which has now become a really knee-jerk, fast classification of people by skin color and sexuality and And has also really reduced people's identities to, in the worst cases, reduces people's identities to somewhere on a scale of victimhood. Right. So your identity becomes all about how much of a victim are you. And I noticed that it took me a while to realize why I received so much hostility from social justice, leftists, among other people on Twitter. I receive hostility from all over on Twitter. I'm sure everyone does. Everyone who tweets a lot gets also flamed of course you know if you're on twitter you stand there and you throw down your glove and you're like i will fight all colors <laughs> i see yeah yeah so um <laughs> and i am very very reactive unfortunately i it's an aspect of my personality i'm not proud of at all and would like to change and have been in trying to change with the encouragement of you know some people i really admire like jonathan Haidt and sarah hader but yeah I get into fights easily mm-hmm. but I noticed that part of the problem is that I was writing especially last year when I was living in India and I'm now probably going back a great deal about uh, my Indian background my Parsi background and people don't dislike it because I'm claiming a non-white identity well, I'm not just claiming I'm I have a non-white identity but I'm not a victim mm-hmm. And so it feels to them like I'm falsely claiming a victim status, which was never my intention, even though I'm clearly a privileged person who is not in any way a victim. And I think that that has—I feel this kind of reduction of identity to where you are in a victim scale has has is very unimaginative and counterproductive.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I'll shut up for a moment let you respond.
1: No, I mean I think what you're putting your finger on is this larger objection to identity politics, a kind of a way of organizing um, you know, organizing our our social interactions in terms of what racial or gender or sexual identity we we identify we we, we assign to yes. ourselves. Um yeah, this is I think I understand the logic of this argument, right? And 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 the. Design. I think
0: someone called it identity ethics, which uh-huh. is a nice way of putting it. it. So it's not so much just identity politics, so grouping together mm-hmm. for a specific purpose, but it's actually judging people, having double standards for how you judge people ethically, or just assuming things about people's ethical worth based on their identity.
1: Right. Okay. I'm trying to think to get it straight in my head. I think that I don't object. And I don't think we should object to the idea that we can make and we have to make in 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 life kind of broad generalizations about groups in order for in order for us to function well in society. I mean, that's a very loaded thing to say. Let me kind of unpack that. Um, I think that the position of the social justice left is that in aggregate, we can identify certain types of groups as benefiting under uh you know and in the status quo and certain groups suffering under the status quo um, That's not to say that there aren't exceptions, and it's not to say that there isn't diversity and variety within those groups, but I think it is historically and politically inaccurate to say that certain groups, however they're defined, have not benefited and are not benefiting under the status quo. That level of generalization, I hope we can all be comfortable with because it's one of the ways that we say something intelligent about the society we live in. We know that uh, the left's reaction to this Covington kid was driven in part because he was white, because he was male, because he was overtly religious. Um, and if he didn't, you know, I think people on the right are more than happy to acknowledge that the left responds or reacts to certain people based on their identity. I think that it's unrealistic and historically inaccurate for us to ignore the way that certain resources and political rights and capacities have been distributed according to our membership in certain groups or our adherence to certain identities. And what the social justice left is focused on is uh, taking those identities seriously as political phenomenon. And in some cases, uh, viewing them negatively and needing to address the kinds of ways that these specific identities have been targeted and in other times, looking at identities as something to be mobilized around and a resource to be uh, mined in order to bring about social change. So I think the, the focus on identity on the justice left is entirely correct. That's not to say that they don't often, um, you know, reach conclusions or target individuals who that that don't deserve those that kind of targeting just because uh, their membership in a certain group, but. The focus on identity is not only uh, necessary; it's just inevitable, given the way our society historically has privileged identity as an organizing principle.
0: Hmm. I I would disagree. I guess for a couple of reasons. One is that I think that organizing around an identity, it can it can be useful, but only if you also allow people who don't share that identity to share your cause only if you actually have genuine allyship and by that I don't mean a kind of you people who are not the same as us get to the back and shut up about this you're not allowed to have an opinion on it I mean that you should be able to you should be able to fight for people's causes even if you're not part of that identity and it shouldn't matter what should matter should be your opinions your ideas whether or not those are useful. Mm-hmm. And I think this kind of the threat of ghettoization is always there in identity politics. And I felt that very much with what is happening with trans activism, not trans people. So I'm talking only about activists here and probably, probably even a minority of activists because it's the most annoying people who obviously draw the most attention. right and who we notice, and there is a certain value in that. So activism is also about making people uncomfortable, because if you don't make them uncomfortable, then you won't get their attention. And Uh the first thing you need to do is get their attention. So I can see some value to that tactic. But when I look at, for example, gay rights movements, the gay rights movement, even though it was focused around an identity, There was no sense that if you were not gay, you were not permitted to be part of this movement. You were not. It was. It was not a movement about how horrible straight people are. It was about finding equal rights and dignity for everybody. It wasn't about a turning of the tables. It wasn't about a demonizing of the out group. It wasn't about uh, everybody who's not gay shut up, sit down, and shut up. And I think that that is what made it so successful. Whereas with trans rights people, although I would like to um, support trans rights, well, I do support trans rights. I also am never, ever going to be an ally in a way that I was for the gay rights movement because I feel that if you're an ally, you're just making yourself
1: vulnerable to endless attack. See, I I think here that we are reimagining the gay rights movement as being more saccharine than it really was. Um,
0: it wasn't saccharine, but I think it was not, it was quite inclusive.
1: I mean, yes and no. I mean, many people attempted to offer certain kinds of olive branches or present themselves as allies to gay marriage advocates by saying something on the lines of, We respect your, you know, your dignity and your desire to. F- to have your bonds of affection with certain people recognized in law through some kind of bond? Let's call them civil unions, right? Uh, they can legally have all the same uh, functions as marriage, but we'll just call them this other thing. Aren't we being great allies? And
0: oh no, but I'm not. I'm not talking about that. This half-hearted support. I'm talking about full support for the cause, but not being part, not sharing the identity. That used to be a possible thing. And I feel like that is the discourse, the identity po- politics discourse has become so toxic. That is no longer a possible thing. It's a, it's stay out of this, stay in your lane. Don't have an opinion on this. And I don't find that it's not human to not have an opinion on things.
1: Here, I think I disagree with the way you're characterizing the, the claim that... Uh, these sorts of people you're, you're referring to are, are making. I don't think what they're saying is don't be an ally, don't partner with us, don't don't lend your energy and your attention. Um, they do want that kind of allyship. What they don't want is people trying to who are not part of that that group trying to shape the goals or the tactics, trying to um, guide or lead the organization. I think that's what you're referring to when you're saying they're being told don't have an opinion. And I think that in that in that sense, it, it is analogous to what I'm saying about, about mm. those people who said, you know, um, during the height of the gay rights or the gay marriage movement, those that, that tried to urge gay people to moderate their demand. And instead, you know, you'll get more people if you just ask for a civil union as opposed to a full marriage.
0: Mm. But we're talking about two different things here. So, you're talking about people wanting wanting gay rights movement to moderate its demands. So those are people with a particular view on gay rights. So that's an opinion. Whereas what I'm talking about is an identity. So you could be completely in agreement with all of the aims, but because of your identity, you're not supposed to have a view. And it's also, I, f- I find it really unhelpful to group people um, to to have this slippage between identity and opinion, which I feel like we've got into a little bit in this part of the conversation. So I'm really suspicious of the black people think this, Muslims think that, gay people think this, trans people think that. I'm very, very... Very suspicious of this kind of equating of the identity with the opinion, hmm. and I think that that is one of the th- things that is happening in identity politics, and it's a very lazy way of arguing, and I also see a lot of people from outside the group arguing that way, so well, people argue in all kinds of bad ways, so maybe we don't need to go into that or we'll be here all day
1: <laughs> no i mean of course of course it's lazy i mean the you know uh the diversity of opinion among black people is as diverse as the diversity of opinion among any other group of people. Um, so there's no question. And, uh, I, I share, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I, I kind of share your eye rolling at the people who say, uh, you can't have that opinion because that is an anti-black opinion or, or that's, that, you know, this, all black people think the same way. And then you must hew to this imagined, um, uh, you know, standard that they all hold. I completely agree that that is a bogus and fallacious way of thinking. So you'll get no argument from me.
0: I also really want to go back to outcomes. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's important to to try to increase people's equality of access to resources. I think it's important to look at what the person's situation actually is. So, for example, I don't find it helpful to say, okay, we're going to help African-Americans to get out of poverty. I find it much more helpful to say, okay, we're going to take people who are in poverty and we're going to help them to get out of poverty. And uh, for good historical reasons and for continuing reasons, I'm sure also that may disproportionately help African-Americans. I'm 100% fine with that. But the important thing is that these people are in poverty. The important thing is not, to me at least, is not the racial makeup of that group.
1: Here I disagree a bit with, with what you're saying. Um, for so much of American history, the distribution of resources was determined in large part by what your race was, Right. Uh, you know, whether it's the history of redlining when it comes to housing or access to um, loans from banks or uh, the GI Bill after World War II, or any number of social services provided by the government or private actors, your identity, your race, that's what determined whether or not you had access mm, yeah. to Yeah, no, it. I don't dispute that It is, all. right, and, and I, I think that what people are drawing attention to right now is that, um, it is invaluable to foreground that kind of racial disparity if we are going to effectively address uh, poverty among Black people. Because to treat this maldistribution of resources as race-blind is... uh, is to ignore how we got in this problem in the first place. That a race blind solution, or let's say a race blind framing, is going to miss the stubborn peculiarities of how we got into the problem in the mm. first place. I think that that there's something almost defensive and distortionist about, and and, and almost you know kind of self forgiving for let's say a non black person to now look back with. 80 odd years of, of, of hindsight at redlining, and to say, well, you know, yes, of course, race mattered in all these different ways, but let's try to keep race out of our analysis. Let's try to keep race out of our solutions and our, and our thinking. I think that's a kind of, um, that's less motivated by, uh, you know, a kind of a high minded race neutrality and much more by the defensiveness of someone who doesn't want. The history of racism to be acknowledged in in, in policy. So
0: I I'd, I'd like to acknowledge the history, but I don't think it's helpful to, I don't think it's helpful to think in terms of turning the tables on people, and I also feel that it's it's important to know that people live their lives as individuals. They don't live as groups.
1: So. Well, I don't think that's true.
0: You don't think that's true. Oh that's no, interesting. No, I
1: don't.
0: Because I I feel that you know someone who looks very similar to to no. you not you personally to to one if someone who looks very similar to you is very wealthy and privileged that doesn't directly affect you just because you share superficial similarity of appearance
1: no but but the way i live my life the kinds of um values that i hold the kinds of uh, the way i regard myself my worth the way i uh you know interact with others that's all deeply shaped by the groups i identify with the kinds of communities i choose to affiliate myself with you know i mean, I'm, and, and I'm even thinking now of a point that uh that Helen made. I listened to a podcast that Helen recently did with, with Yasha Monk um on I think Slate. Um and in this podcast, you know, she makes the point, which I think is a totally true point, that who we are in society is determined through our membership in groups and and through the identities that we forge. She draws a line at a certain point, she says something to the effect of Nevertheless, our membership in groups should not have a political role or a political function. But the way we live our lives is deeply influenced by the groups that we're a part of, whether that be um, white or Christian, whether that be wealthy or poor, whether that be uh, Parsi or um, or Argentine. You know, the membership mm. that we uh, identify for ourselves, that has a huge impact on, on, on how we live our lives. Sure.
0: I I still feel that material circumstances are the number... I mean, I'm a really old-fashioned leftist in this way. Mm. I still feel the most important thing is material circumstances. The number one most important thing. That if you are struggling to pay your rent, it doesn't matter what your skin color is at that point. If you are... You know, if you have a... a um, If you're living in the US and you have a an you have a serious illness and you have to get you don't have proper health insurance and it doesn't matter what color your skin is at that point to me it's more pressing mm-hmm. or if for example you open your door to the police and are shot uh as it uh, the thing that happened to that gamer guy who was pranked i don't oh, yeah i don't know and to a certain degree, I don't care whether the police are shooting more black people, more white people, more brown people. I think the priority should be reforming the police. I think the priority should be single payer health care. I think the priority should be a better welfare state that doesn't allow people to get trapped in poverty. And, you know, more care for the elderly, more care for the disabled, more support for single mothers. And I see all of those things as identity neutral. So those things may affect some groups more than others. And I think it's, it is fine to point that out and we should be cognizant of history. But at the same time, the actual solutions, I feel, have got to be identity neutral. They've got to be based on circumstances, not identity
1: Well, let me make a a couple of responses. First, to address what I think is probably the number one misconception um, many people have about the social justice left is this idea that it's not appropriately focused on material concerns or economic concerns. And I think nothing could be farther from the truth. When you look at some of the marquee networks that have formed and activist movements that have formed out of recent social justice organizing I think Black Lives Matter should immediately come to mind. and There is an organization focused on very concrete list of problems. They have a website where they lay out explicitly the laws that they'd like passed, the kinds of um, policies that they'd like adopted, and they're focused on very clear issues like um, bail, access to bail money, um, uh, holding people uh, while they await trial, uh, issues related to access to attorneys. Mm-hmm disparities in interactions with police. They have a very materialistic focus. And when I think about social justice organizing, I think that that they very clearly illustrate the seriousness with which that segment takes uh, material damage, material injury.
0: I think the first three, um, so that was a really interesting list. The first three I completely agree with. So you know, I think the prison system needs to be completely reformed, and the fourth one was about disparities, and that's where I, that's where, I did part ways with a social justice left. So I think it's fine to outline disparities, but I don't think the solution can be about ending disparities. The solution has to be about ameliorating the problem. So uh, you know the. For example, if the police are shooting more African Americans than white people, that is a problem. So we may need to we may also need to tackle racism within the police. Mm-hmm. I have a little bit of an if I'm saying a few ifs around this issue just because Glen uh sure. listening to some of Glenn Low- listening to and reading some of Glenn Lowry's work has given me pause on this issue. So I used to think it was very clear cut and I've become less sure, which doesn't mean to say that I agree with Lowry, it means i it literally means i don't know anymore i'm i'm not certain what well, okay,
1: the okay the, the if can be separated yeah. here that's fine.
0: um but you know it wouldn't be a good solution if the police ended up just shooting more white people as well so that the numbers got evened out the problem is right well, yeah of I, I course i mean it. no one suggests that and i know <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> i don't mean <laughs> to make a straw man out of it but i that it's just a little illustration i guess of why i feel that i don't feel that disparity is the best focus i feel the best focus is the bad circumstances affecting people's lives and if that affects some people more than others it's fine to note that and to try to realize why that is so we can make some changes to that but the solutions can't be identity-based that's my my feeling
1: but but see it see- that's that's exactly what Black Lives Matter is, is doing. And and, and let me let me just highlight this by, you know, you pointed to the fact that I mentioned uh you know disparities in in interactions with the police. I mean, in, in your list of causes that you do think require or merit greater attention, you pointed to um the issue of single mothers and the attention that they need. I mean, that's that's a perfect example of an identity-based group, right? You didn't say single parents, you said single mothers, and I think that's quite right on your part because we do know that the vulnerability attached to being a single parent is greater. The challenges of being a single parent are greater and have unique causes uh, depending on what gender you are if you're a woman. And it would make total sense to me that if a society chose to address the problem of single parenthood, it would ask itself very carefully, what sort of special challenges, what sort of disparate uh, obstacles do mothers face? Maybe it's abusive spouses, maybe it's trying to um, the issue of nursing while also being an employee. Um, maybe you know there's a number of things uh, recovering from a pregnancy. I think attention to a person's identity uh, is vital mm. to address I'm, that I'm going to go
0: back and change my change my view. And- single parents instead (laughs) I mean there are some biological issues obviously as you just outlined but I think that yes we could just define it as single parents and if that is mostly women then it's mostly women that doesn't matter so I don't mind if the well I mean I want the policies to have a positive impact on whoever needs them and if it's there's a greater proportion of x group who need um, who are in need? Then I'm fine for X group to be more benefited, but
1: I, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, it's not always yeah. <laughs> okay, so and this, this is a, this is a bugaboo of mine. Um, good, that's, that's you know, good. The, the grievance is I'm, I'm glad the pro- I find your bugaboo. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm trying. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. So this is the way I think about it. You know, the, the grievances that we have in society, the problems that any one of us might have, um, don't fall from heaven fully formed and fully articulated. Uh, the problem of being a single parent who happens to be a woman—you um, don't necessarily obviously identify the problem as as having its origins in let's in, in your gender. Mm-hmm right um it could be that maybe maybe my employer is biased against me because I'm a parent maybe the problem is that i have not saved my money properly maybe the issue is that um you know i'm too young to have a child when we are faced with problems we don't necessarily all congregate around the same uh way the same frame the same articulation of that grievance But the great thing about identity politics, the reason why it's vital for any kind of movement focused on justice, is that it helps us to cultivate the intellectual, the cognitive, and uh, material resources necessary to identify the source of our problem. And it would be impossible for a mother to identify that her gender is one of the reasons why she's facing these troubles. in the context of her parenthood, if she was only interacting with men, right? Other fathers, let's say. Um, There's something about being around other mothers, discussing your common sets of problems, identifying common causal connections that allows us to properly identify the source of our grievance. That's exactly what identity politics makes possible. It makes it possible for us to get together and recognize, assuming that you know Glenn Lowry is wrong and, and this theory is correct, uh, to recognize that the problem is racist police. The problem is a bigoted judicial system, and it's only through identity that we can, art, you know, identify and articulate that problem. Um, if and and, and and otherwise, it would just get lost in, uh, you know, in the haze of an unnecessarily. Uh, diverse kind of conversation. I think
0: that if the problem were, uh, if the problem could be reduced down to bigotry, then you wouldn't have white people also being unjustly imprisoned or not having money to have access to bail or being wrongfully shot by police. So I think it's that focus can actually be a distraction from the larger problem, which may be affecting some people more than others, but. Can't necessarily be reduced down to this is racism.
1: Well, I I, again, I mean, I completely agree that the ills of our of our justice system are not just a factor of race, right? Obviously, it intersects with other problems like poverty and with geographic location, and uh, you know, interacts with issues of drugs and the militarization of the police. It's a whole laundry list, and thank God intersectionality furnishes us with the analytic tools to make sense of this right um, but we all and I think any one of your listeners would agree that the causal pathway that produces harm for some groups is different than the causal pathway that produces the same harm for a different group that you can be poor and you can be you can be a poor white person and a wealthy black person both end up behind bars but for very different reasons. And it makes sense if you're trying to, if you think that's a problem, to pay attention to the role of identity in causing that common fate, because it's going to interact with people in different ways. Mm.
0: I think we're going to agree to disagree on this. <laughs> but um,
1: okay, I think yeah. But thank you to. for
0: putting your, your point of view so eloquently. Um, I'm aware that we've been going on for quite a while now. I do find you very easy to talk to.
1: Oh, that's great. You as well. I don't,
0: I don't want to trespass in your time too much. I would like to get back, to, though, a little bit to the iGen students. And right. I'm probably not going to challenge you too much on this because I, this is your area that you're familiar with. And I am not familiar with what campus life is like at the moment at all. Um, but have you seen, I don't know, how how long have you been an academic, Geoffrey?
1: Uh, I've been teaching now for five years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And before so, that, I was working my way through the graduate system.
0: Right. Have you seen changes in the atmosphere on campus? And if so, how would you characterize them? Do you have some generalizations you'd like to make about that cohort? Or do you feel that that you can't really generalize there?
1: Oh, it- a generalization could not be any easier. The generalization I'm gonna make is that the vast majority of students are not overtly political, right? I mean, this is the easiest possible thing to say, because mm-hmm. it's it's true that we have in our mind this image, I think, of, of of these students as out of control activists, as um even especially at elite schools, but at all schools, right? Maybe of these students who are just uh poised once they enter the workforce to let loose this insane rhetoric and activism. And the, the fact is, this cohort of students is remarkably similar to all previous cohorts in so far as the vast majority are not political. This is not how they live their lives. They're interested in the exact same you know, thing, video games and sports and sex as every other generation of young people. Uh, so that's, that's an easy and very accurate generalization I think I can make. But the other generalizations I, I can make um, are not, you know, perhaps quite so so flippant. Uh, this generation of young students in America is uh, the most diverse. They are the most likely to suffer from food insecurity and housing insecurity. Uh, a, about, I believe it's 25% of students, according to uh, a University of Wisconsin organization called, I believe it's the Hope Center, um, they did a national survey of students and they found, I believe something 25% or so of students face weekly food insecurity, meaning they don't know where their next meal is going to come from.
0: I'm really um, startled by that because it's um, very remarkable. Uh, the cost of university has gone up so much. I mean, when, when I went to university, you know, back in the, um, back in the Cretacean era, we had dinosaurs and things, but also, um, University was free. There were no tuition costs. And um, we received grants to cover living expenses. And, um, and, and now, you know, I don't know offhand how much the costs are. I'm going to actually look that up. Um, and I not only went to university for free, I also had a scholarship.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not so speaking of the see. UK. I hope that's, yeah. I hope that's understood.
0: Um, mm, yeah, sure. But- uh, yeah, sure. But I'm just, yes, it's now nine nine thousand two hundred and fifty pounds, which is thirteen thousand and fifty dollars a year for undergraduate programs, unlike in the u- unlike in the u s in the u k all the universities cost the same amount right. but you know that's that is a lot of um money. You can obviously you can get loans which you pay back later, there are schemes, et cetera. Um, but nevertheless, and in the states, it's much more extreme. Oh, it's, um, it's
1: horrific. You know, people, this current generation is in the process of graduating with astronomical levels of student debt. That's going to hinder their future prospects uh, financially for their entire lives. It's it's a tragedy.
0: So, I'm really surprised that I'm really surprised that more. Oh, yes, yeah, so at the U in the U S, it begins at ten thousand a year, right? And it's around twenty five thousand six hundred and twenty is the average out of state universities right. per year. And and can go up to as much as fifty thousand. That is insane.
1: Oh it's it's it is insane. I there it's completely unsustainable. Uh it's a it's a it is a travesty that it's allowed to climb like that. Uh things are much more sane in Canada, although um they are climbing as well. They're set provincially and they are climbing. Uh but no in the US the retrenchment by states in their support for higher education is one of the real crises, I think within the the industry uh, because it's, it's putting more and more of the financial obligation on students who are taking out larger and larger loans, or very often they, they disrupt their, their studies. They take a year or two off thinking that they'll work and then come back and they never do, or they, they do only at great cost. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, I, I think I think extremely highly of Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff um, as people and as scholars, but I think uh, anyone who reads their work should understand, and they, they do make this this point. So uh, you know to their credit that the there is enormous pressure and, and struggles uh, and, and problems that young people, young students face today that their parents didn't. Right. So to call them coddled is unfortunate. Uh, I think rhetorically, mm. but uh, it's, I mean, I, to be, to be fair, I think that that was not the title that they wanted. No, it wasn't. It was chosen by their publishers. Uh, and I've, I, I that, that is unfortunate.
0: I didn't like the title either. Yeah. Um, I agree. Uh,
1: and so I think, you know, it, I, I, I'm not asking, I know I can't persuade many of your readers that um, every single free speech or uh, left wing, uh, action on campus needs to be you know excused and forgiven, um, but I would ask that we put at the our forefront kind of the enormous challenges that even at very prestigious universities, many students face because it 's so much more extreme than what their counterparts 10, 15 years ago had to put up with
0: mm, mm. oh yeah i I'm completely with you on that um, that might be a good place to finish. Okay, um, but is there anything that you are itching to say that I haven't given you a chance to say?
1: Oh, uh, well, we could go on, I'm sure, for many hours. It's uh, <laughs> it's been great speaking with you. Almost, almost certainly. Gosh, I
0: wish I could come to um, Nova Scotia and have some beers with you and Justin, who is your neighbor.
1: I'd I, I like that. Hello, Justin. So fun. No, it would be wonderful, <laughs> and I hope that we'll get you uh, a chance to do this again sometime, or maybe just interacting online because. Uh, I, I share your desire to turn down the temperature and have a, a rational conversation, uh, especially on these issues.
0: This has been a really productive conversation and it's given me a lot of food for thought. And I do tend to often change my mind about things at a later date. So um, often I'm quite confrontational when I'm having the discussion, but afterwards, um, when it sinks in, I make. Feel differently, <laughs> so um, it's always worth um, putting your views across eloquently and calmly as you did. And thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you. I really enjoyed myself.
0: It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for Ario Magazine. Ario is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant. Edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor. Yours truly, at Ario, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ario and T are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ario a R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you are listening on a podcast app, Take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.